I think that's probably the major difference. But overall, I really think the risk for just common complex disease, the things that put you down later in life, that's probably the real driving factor. You don't need a super long-lived genome to have an extended health span. I think it's within the grasp of anyone as long as you have kind of counteract your genetic risks. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gail Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Ali Torkamani. Dr. Torkamani is a professor and the director of genome informatics at the Scripps Research Translational Institute. By analyzing genetic and genomic data of many types in a systems biology framework, Dr. Torkamani hopes to advance scientific understanding of the genetic mechanisms of human diseases. His primary focus areas include human genome interpretation and genetic dissection of novel rare diseases, predictive genomic signatures of response to therapy, especially cancer therapy, and novel sequencing-based assays as biomarkers of disease. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Ashley. Pleasure to be here. So Ali, it's very exciting for us to have you. And our audience really like to know what, uh, what is the history of, uh, uh, or what is the background of uh, our guest, and specifically, what made you to decide to be a scientist, and uh, what was the pathway for you from a young age to becoming a scientist and uh, becoming a, a professor at the Script Institute? Sure. So... As long as I can remember, I've always been interested in genetics, and it really relates more to, I guess, existential sort of questions about why we're here and, and why we are the way we are, I suppose. I mean, to some extent, I just wonder about those sorts of bigger questions, and that sort of drew me to genetics since, you know, I, I sort of believe, I suppose, that genetics defines a lot about us, or at least influences a lot about us from the way we look to, you know, e even the way we think and, and perhaps some of the decisions that we make. Of course, that's, that's also influenced by our environment and experiences and all that. But I, I think genetics has a pretty big impact on that sort of stuff, maybe bigger than some people might appreciate. So that question of sort of uh, digging into what defines us as human beings, really, and the actions that we take and, you know, our meaning and that sort of thing drove me towards genetics and really trying to understand dissect genetics as it relates to humanity in general, but really more recently on, on a focus on human health. So I study quantitative genetics now or applied quantitative genetics. The path to that was a, a little bit windy, I suppose. This sort of took a lot of biology sort of and math related classes growing up. But I never really connected like genetics and quantitative sciences together for a long time. And they were like pretty distinct, separate things for me. Yeah, I went to undergrad at Stanford and I studied chemistry there because really I just wanted to 
get a more kind of uh, fundamental understanding of essentially molecular biology, the makeup of our bodies. And I really hadn't heard of bioinformatics or quantitative genetics at that time. Took plenty of genetics courses and all that, but I had never really been exposed to the bioinformatics or statistical genetics side of things. It wasn't until later, after undergrad, I came to UCSD and I met Nick Shork, who became my PhD mentor, and he's a pretty prominent statistical geneticist. And it was then when I really learned, you know, I guess my eyes were open to the possibilities of quantitative genetics and mixing genetics with computational sciences and quantitative sciences. So there, at that point, a sort of the interest in the quantitative genetics sparked. I worked night and day, I suppose, just like any other PhD student does, I, I guess, but working on a specific problem, trying to classify neutral versus pathogenic mutations. The thought being that, well, your human genome had only recently been sequenced and it turns out there are you know, millions of genetic variants through the population. And I figured, well, there's no way we're going to be able to statistically associate each one of these individual genetic variants with a disease or trait. We need some other tricks. So that's where I thought, okay, well, maybe we could use machine learning methods to classify genetic variants and learn about the commonality sort of across them. Finished my PhD relatively quickly. Craig Venter was the prior record holder at, at UCSD for time to PhD. So I beat him, but he definitely beat me in a number of papers published in that time period. Ali, can you describe to explain to the audience who is Craig Venter? For me, it's like a god, but I'm not sure that everyone knows that. Yeah, it's Craig Venter. You know, he's best known for leading the private effort for sequencing the human genome. So there are two competing, I suppose, efforts, collaborative, inter international sort of effort directed at sequencing the human genome and then a private effort led, done by Solera Genomics, who was led by Craig Venner. And, you know, they, they were pursuing sort of the private sequencing of the human genome. It was, it was a bit controversial. You know, they wanted to basically patent genes and turns out later that was disallowed. But that was sort of the motivation was to sequence the genome, discover all the genes, you know, patent them for various uses. And then Ali, if I recall correctly, they done it maybe in terms of the budget that the NIH done it. So NIH had like a few billion and they done it in a few hundreds of million or something like that. Is that correct? I don't know the details of the budget, but I think, I think that might be right. You know, I don't know. They cheated a little bit though, I, I would okay. say, because the, the public, the public effort made all their data publicly available. The, you know, the private effort didn't. So they were able to use the data from the public okay. effort to <laughs> sort of <laughs> help them along. So uh, they, they definitely benefited from the, the public uh, money. But, but the, the bottom line is that you beat him in the fastest <laughs> graduate study, correct? So that's an <laughs> impressive yeah, sure. achievement. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is the bottom line. But he definitely beat me in uh, impact of for sure. And then the funny thing is l later on, after I joined Scripps, I started a company in the genome interpretation space and his company at the time, Human Longevity, ended up acquiring my company. And so I doubt he remembers, but I got to sort of talk to him and say, you know, say, oh, you know, I, I beat your record <laughs> <laughs> when we did that transaction. 
But very cool. So maybe the next step is to give our audience, and again, genetic is very complex. As a scientist, and I have a PhD in biology, it's still very hard for me to understand. So that's why we have an expert like you to help us. So can you elaborate a bit for our audience of what does it mean genomic or genetic support? What does it mean for, let's say, an average person? Sure. Ba- basically, the the concept is to use genetic information to make health decisions, essentially. So the reason we call it uh, genotype first or uh, genomics first is generally when you think of the way that genetic information is used in medicine at this point in time, it's really more reactive. So people present with a rare disease and then they go through genome sequencing to clarify you know, what the disease is or what's the genetic cause of the disease. And cancer, similarly, you know, you might have a family history of cancer or you might present with cancer really at a young life. And then the genome sequencing is used to determine, oh, you know, why did I end up with cancer or what is the cause of this sort of familial cancer running through my family? The genotype first approaches the try to flip that on its head to say, well, when people are healthy, you know, ostensibly healthy. Why don't we sequence their genome, make some predictions about, you know, what their risks are, look at the rare variations that put them at risk for diseases, look at combinations of common genetic variants that put them at risk for common diseases, and use that to project where their health might end up in the future or what they're at risk for, and then intervene earlier rather than reacting once the disease actually presents itself. And is outside of cancer, is there a connection between genome type first approach or yeah, genotype first approach to maybe more lifestyle related diseases like coronary artery disease or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, pretty much any common disease that you could think of has a large genetic impact. So coronary artery disease or, or just heart attacks, cardiovascular disease has a large genetic component. It's about around 40 or 50 percent sort of of the variability in people presenting with cardiovascular disease relates to genetics. The other the other half or so being related to lifestyle, etc. Now, of course, there's, there's an interaction between those two things as well. They're not like distinct from one another. Obesity has a large genetic, pretty much anything you could think of outside of really strong environmental things like smoking, for example, would drive lung cancer significantly. When people were smoking, that would be the primary driver of lung cancer. But in places like the United States now, where smoking is relatively infrequent or the rate of smoking is declined, then genetic sort of factors start taking over in terms of who's going to end up with lung cancer or not. Yeah, I mean, pretty much any common disease that you can think of that doesn't have a real strong environmental driver is going to have a significant proportion of it explained by genetics. Cool. And so follow-up question about that. So as a scientist, and I'm sure that you know that we're looking at a phenotype is basically the sum of the genotype and the environment. And if we are looking at, let's say, wellness or longevity, can you give us a few examples of how it's working? Like what is the genotype, what is the phenotype, and then what is the environment? And what is the breakdown also? How important is the genotype versus the environment? Yeah, it's an interesting question because it, it sort of depends on how you define longevity or if you look at health span versus lifespan, 
etc. It can be different, really. So if you look at just pure longevity in terms of like just your, your lifespan in general, or really your health span, there's a portion that's dictated by medical advances, etc. So for example, more ancient humans, on average, they would live to whatever, 35 years old or something along those lines. But even that is a little bit misleading. The average, I think, is a little bit misleading, right? So there are these causes of death in childhood and infectious disease, etc., that would like really pull the average down. But if you manage to make it to adulthood, then you would live a, a somewhat typical 60 to 70 years old, something along those lines. So getting past that 70 years old, etc., it's thought that there's a decent amount of genetics driving that like extended longevity. But then getting to 60 or so is perhaps really driven a lot by environment, things like that, or severe genetic sort of diseases like BRCA mutations for breast cancer. You know, Angelina Jolie is the kind of example of that where there's these like individual, very pathogenic genetic mutations that put you at very high risk for disease earlier in life, kind of being defined by earlier than 60 where those can sort of stop you. But for the average for the average person that doesn't have these strong familial genetic variations, then it really becomes a combination of common genetic variation that just modulates your risk for disease and your environment, your actions, your lifestyle, etc. So I'll give you like a, a more concrete example. We have the study that we've done in the elderly. These are people that are over the age of 80 with no common chronic diseases. And we don't see much of a signal on the rare genetic variant side. It doesn't seem like they're really depleted of rare pathogenic mutations to any significant degree. The signals that we do see relate to common genetic variants or polygenic risk. It's just like a, a comprehensive sort of constellation of uh, common genetic variants that relate to your risk. They have a lower risk for coronary artery disease and Alzheimer's disease as it relates to uh, those sort of genetic factors. So there's a contribution there, but then they also tend to be leaner as well. So they tend to live uh, healthier lifestyles as well. So it's a combination really of those two things that can sort of drive you to an extended health span. And a follow-up for that, I hear a lot of people are saying, oh, I have a high cholesterol or high glucose, but it's my genetics. I cannot do anything about that. So what will be uh, your response for that? So it depends, really. So cholesterol actually does tend to be highly genetic, but you can modify it. There is something you, you can do about it. If it's very strongly genetic, like if you have familial hypercholesterolemia, where these, you know, again, there's these rare genetic variants that put you at extremely, extremely high LDL levels then probably lifestyle intervention is not going to work very well. And in those sorts of extreme cases, you probably do need therapeutics to offset that risk. But that, that tends to be pretty rare. For the average person, it's going to be genetics is driving your cholesterol levels, but you can sort of modify it with a healthy... So it's debatable, actually. I mean, there's a lot of debate around this, but I can tell you from my own personal experience looking at my own cholesterol levels, that getting leaner, going with a healthier lifestyle definitely reduced my cholesterol levels. So you can use lifestyle to offset 
those sorts of risks. And then when it comes to something like HbA1c level or glucose levels, I think that's even more clear, clearer than the cholesterol case where things like high intensity exercise, et cetera, does a pretty good job of reducing your glucose levels. You know, example would be my father who had his, you know, he's getting up there in, in, in age and his HbA1c levels were sort of creeping up. And I told him to try doing some intervals, try doing some high intensity exercise for short periods of time. And sure enough, he was able to reduce his levels. Right. And we like to look at it as the genetic is like the card and the, the cards and the, uh, uh, the environment is how you play the cards. So you go to the casino in uh, Vegas and play a card. So you, you got the card that you got, but then the question is how you play the card. And even if you got uh, not the best card, if you play well, you can uh, beat someone else. So I really like your uh, explanation and for our audience. Don't blame your genetics. You can always uh, beat it and it might be harder, but you can do that. And uh, a very good uh, description, uh, Ali, and uh, I appreciate it. The next point that I would like to discuss, which, which is something that I'm really, really excited about, and I know that you are one of the experts with that, is uh, Mendelian randomization. And I know that it's not easy to explain it in a, a easy way. I was trying actually to explain it uh, earlier this week for a uh, in our Orleans meeting for the Insert faculty. And I'm not sure that I done a good job, but I was trying. So can you only try to explain it in a way that our audience will understand what is Mendelian randomization? Sure, I'll give it a shot. Mendelian randomization, you could think of it as an experiment in nature, basically. So when you do, when you do these studies in general that look at like dietary influences on health outcomes, they are fraught with this statistical problem called confounding, where you don't necessarily always know whether or not the association, the correlation that you see between a dietary factor and an outcome is a direct causal relationship, like does, do or, does changing the diet relate to that outcome, or is it confounded by something else? Does like the that diet, is it influenced by, say, just being a healthier person in general? People with healthy diets, for example, tend to be more physically active, let's say. So you have this confounding effect or this correlation with other factors that might be the real drivers of the outcome that you're looking at. The Mendelian randomization is a way to get rid of those confounders, essentially, because genetics, you know, isn't it can be, but it is less prone to these confounding effects. We know, for example, that certain genetic variants are associated with higher or lower cholesterol levels, for example. So if you wanted to draw a causal relationship between, say, cholesterol levels and heart attacks, instead of looking at cholesterol levels alone that might be influenced by all sorts of other things, you can look at the genetic variants that are related to cholesterol levels and see whether or not they are also related to uh, heart attack outcomes. And that's sort of fixing based upon the genetic factors. It doesn't get rid of, but reduces the risk of these outside confounding issues that might disrupt the correlation. It helps you draw a, a more causal relationship since you really, you can pin the signal down to a factor that you definitely know influences the factor that you're interested in looking at and its relationship to a, a health outcome. Hope that if, helps clarify it. 
Yeah, it's really confounding. It helps you get rid of these like external correlations that uh, are hard to control for uh, in general. It's very helpful. So if we take that to like a normal person, like let's say there is a habit that maybe does have a strong environmental risk to it. I could say maybe dietary choices related to cholesterol or smoking as an environmental risk. Do you think that individuals should really be able to understand their genetic risk as well? Like, have you tried giving that information to people? Is it something that is easy to connect? Is it confusing? Like, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think people get it. I think the big stumbling block for people is sort of a a theme that we touched on before. Uh, Some people think that genetics is uh, deterministic, that you have, if you have genetic risk, then there's nothing you can do about it. And that's simply just not true. As technology progresses, especially, there's more more and more you can do about your genetics. So even drugs can be used to offset, you know, severe genetic effects. But usually you're thinking about smaller sort of influences on, on your health overall, where lifestyle or dietary choices can influence outcomes. It's really hard, actually, to separate genetics. Like on a scientific level, it's really hard to separate genetics from lifestyle and environment. They're really interrelated to one another. Like when you look at the heritability of a particular disease, it's not like a fixed concept. It changes over time, depending upon what the environment is. Like the smoking, you know, example that I brought up, you know, if people smoke a lot, then genetics maybe doesn't have so much to do uh, with lung cancer. But if people smoke less, then genetics tends to have a bigger contribution on on lung cancer. So it's, it's, it's not a fixed concept. It really inter interacts with environment. So that means that if you, if you change your environment, then you can change the way, you know, your genetics influences your health. So getting past that one stumbling block, I think of like, just genetics is not deterministic. Once people get past that, then I think, you know, if you tell people you're at high genetic risk or low genetic risk and you should do X, Y, Z, people certainly get it. So we have a study that we've done called MyGeneRank where we built an app, a smartphone-based app that returns coronary artery disease genetic risk to individuals. So basically the way it works is anyone could uh, download the app. They consent to participating in a study within the app. They needed to have pre-existing 23andMe genetic data. They give us permission to access that. We process it, return to them a genetic risk score for coronary artery disease, and then through survey questions, basically try to determine how people respond to that information. So we found that people do understand the information. So for example, if we ask them to disagree or agree with the statement of my genetics put me at high risk for coronary artery disease, You see a nice relationship where people that are at high risk agree with that statement. People who are at low risk kind of disagree uh, with that statement. So people understand the information that's being returned back to them. If you ask them whether or not they are able to reduce their risk for coronary artery disease, overall, everyone sort of agrees, yes, I can reduce my risk for coronary artery disease. And then when we look at what actions, what preventative health actions they took in response. And we were really interested in whether or not people started lipid lowering therapy. The reason being that if you're at high genetic risk, the benefit that you get from lipid lowering therapy is greater than people who are at low genetic risk. So when we looked at that, when you compare high versus low genetic risk individuals, 
two times as many people in the high genetic risk group versus the low genetic risk group initiated uh, lipid lowering therapy. And they initiated it on average 10 years earlier in life. So about the average age of a high genetic risk individual who started lipid lowering therapy was about 52 years old versus 65 or so years old in the low genetic risk group. And I think those people were kind of reacting to their overall risk because we reported back to them their overall risk for a uh, heart attack as well, which increases with age. So yeah, for people, I think definitely once you arm them with enough educational material about how to interpret that risk, I think people get it and they respond uh, appropriately. Very interesting. Ali, you mentioned before the Weldery study that you've done with relatively long-lived people. And can you describe a bit this experiment that you've done and what are the takeaway for our audience from such an experiment? Yeah, so that was recruiting now over a little over a thousand individuals who are over the age of 80 and who don't have any common chronic disease. So they don't have diabetes. They haven't had a heart attack. They haven't had cancer or anything like that. And the idea was to basically try to determine what it is it about their genomes that sort of allowed them to become these elderly individuals or have an extended health span. So really looking at getting to an advanced age and being healthy, that this health span concept versus a lifespan concept. Because you could be 100 years old, but have, you know, all sorts of diseases and be somewhat miserable. That's not, I don't think that's a goal that anyone really has in mind. The Really, the goal is to uh, get to an advanced age, but still be active, still be healthy, still be able to sort of live your life as best as you can. So that's what we were sort of looking for there. And we had limited information on their activities, etc. I mean, we know that they were, the elderly individuals tend to be more educated overall. They tend to be leaner overall. But for example, in terms of smoking, well, there was no difference. And if anything, there tended to be a little bit of a higher rate of smoking among the elderly versus an average U.S. population of the same age. But still, overall, you could see they, especially when it comes to BMI and their weight, they tend to be healthier in that manner and more highly educated. And then we looked at longevity genetic variants that were known. And there's a very kind of weak signal, I would say, on the longevity side of things and a much stronger signal on the sort of lower genetic risk for common diseases. So like I mentioned earlier, they had lower overall genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease, which would be a kind of a big factor in terms of overall health, especially later in life, and overall lower risk for coronary artery disease in terms of genetics. But you know, some kind of, I thought it was surprising anyways, when you look at cancer risk, there didn't seem to, they didn't seem to have a difference in genetic risk as it relates to cancer. And maybe, you know, that offset by lifestyle to some extent. So we saw this kind of, this signal of healthier lifestyle overall, at least if you look at BMI, lower sort of genetic risk for some of the major causes of death, really, that occur later in life. And the other interesting thing that we saw is when we did an unbiased sort of look at the genome, looking at what other genetic variants are associated with this healthy aging phenotype, we found kind of weak signals relating to cognition 
in general. So not just Alzheimer's disease, but other genetic variants that have been linked to things like depression or schizophrenia or things of that that relate to just your cognition. And I think it highlighted for me this sort of brain-body sort of link. What the direction is, I couldn't tell you for sure, but I think it really highlights that either having the genetic predisposition to or just kind of being cognitively intact, taking care of yourself, that can lead to an extended health span. And perhaps people that are a little bit more peppy or whatever, they're able to do that a little bit better than people that are, you know, maybe more prone to uh, depression or reduced cognitive uh, abilities. Very interesting, Ali. And uh, a few weeks ago, we interviewed Nirbal Zilai, which used to work on a very long-lived people, so mostly living above 100. So how do you compare your cohort to his cohort? And what are the, maybe the genetic differences between? Yeah, so his cohort is definitely this kind of longevity versus health span sort of cohort. But I think overall, I think they had very similar sorts of signals. I haven't looked at whether or not they've looked at polygenic risk in that cohort. I'm sure that they have. And I'm sure that you would find that they have lower risk for the major causes of death, especially Alzheimer's disease and coronary artery disease. But I think there was a little bit less of a signal in our cohort on the sort of longevity, FOXO sort of related genetic variants that seem to be most directly related to longevity in general. We don't see much of a signal there in our cohort. And I believe they have a little bit more of a signal on those kind of longevity, directly longevity associated variants in their cohort. I think that's probably the major difference. But overall, I I really think the risk for just common complex disease, the things that put you down later in life, that's probably the real driving factor. You don't need a super long-lived genome to have an extended health span. I think it's within the grasp of anyone as long as you have kind of counteract your genetic risks. That's a very good news for uh, most of us, that most of it in our control, it's not all genetics. And uh, don't blame your genetics on your Ellison and longevity. Just work hard. Yeah, that's right. For the average person, definitely. There's going to be some outliers, of course, but most people are not outliers. They might think they're outliers, but most people are not outliers. You know, we're, we all tend to be average. <laughs> okay. And you've also described, obviously, how important genomics research is. How about in relation to our healthcare system? Do you think we will ever, well, maybe I'll start. Do you think that we're looking at genomics enough when we're talking about healthcare as a whole? Or where do you see us going you know, with incorporating that maybe in the next five or 10 years? Yeah, absolutely not on incorporating genetics enough into the medical system. It's barely scratching the surface, I would say. And in most places, probably non-existent, really. And part of that is just that genetics is, maybe more recently, this is not the case, but genetics is really just not taught as part of clinical training in general. I think there's big, even for the genetics that should be utilized in clinical practice, where it's like, embedded in the guidelines, I think there's big gaps in terms of what is supposed to be done versus what is actually done, you know, even for like familial cancer screening, for example. I think a good, a good example of that was there's a study that comes out of Healthy Nevada 
the renowned institute, I think, was sort of the home institute of this study where in collaboration with the company called Helix, they were looking at CDC tier one genetic diseases. So this would be things like hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, familial hypercholesterolemia. It's a pretty small list of really actionable genetic causes of somewhat common diseases like breast cancer and ovarian cancer. They found something like, I think, you know, around 10% or under 10% of people had some sort of interesting disease-associated variation, but many of them had no notation of that in their electronic health record at all, and actually no evidence of that disease or looking for that disease in their electronic health record at all. These are like pretty serious conditions where you can intervene. If you know about it earlier early enough, you can do something about it. And that's like the low-hanging fruit, I think, in terms of like using genetics in prevention. And we're falling short on that. So we're falling short on that. And then the stuff that I was talking about in terms of polygenic risk for coronary artery disease, which is really the major sort of genetic component of coronary artery disease, or e- even for breast and ovarian cancer, the major component of the genetics is not BRCA mutations, it's polygenic risk. And that information is not being used at all, let's say, to prioritize who should get mammography screening, should they do it earlier, should they maybe even delay it later because of the degree of false positives that that are associated with that screening and some of the harm that comes later. I mean, I think there's a lot we can do yet to even just get started with using these polygenic risk scores in the medical system. And the reason for that, in your opinion, is it a lack of knowledge or the cost or other reason? Well, I think part of it is it's new. Certainly, it, it takes time for any new technology to be adopted broadly. And the human genome was sequenced, what, about 20 years ago or something like that now. And then it took a while for the cohorts for genome-wide association studies to be big enough where you could discover enough genetic variation that drove a significant uh, amount of risk, that accounted for a significant amount of risk. It's really only until very recently, now with these really large cohorts like the UK Biobank, hopefully the All of Us cohort in, in the United States, where you have like large enough populations of half a million to a million or so people with genetic information where you can start drawing much stronger sort of actionable relationships between genetics and outcomes and use that information to drive sort of prevent prevention. So it's just starting, I think, the studies to do like randomized studies to show that, for example, you can improve health outcomes by using this information are really just getting started. So that we need to build that evidence base, I suppose, for broader adoption. But for someone like me, I'm convinced that we should be using it now, the connection is strong enough, in my opinion, that that are interested, that people want to know about their genetic risk, they should be able to get that information and they should be able to act upon it. And do you feel like for people that getting that information themselves through those at-home services is a good start or should they wait until they can find some sort of healthcare provider that can do those tests or at least offer more interpretation than you can find on 23andMe? I think it's a personal choice. I think if you feel equipped 
to uh, take on that information and, and act upon it, then I think you should and you should be able to. Now, some people are maybe a little bit more intimidated by genetic information or might think that they would be more prone to anxiety if they found out, you know, that they were at the 99th percentile or something like that of for coronary artery disease. And some people just don't want to know that information. And that's fine. I think that's their choice. You don't have to know it if, if you don't want to. But I think most people are, are equipped to handle that information. And I think it's empowering. You know, I think once you know that, then you kind of know where to focus your efforts in terms of uh, prevention. So yeah, I think the average person is capable of understanding and acting upon on that information. So, and I think they should, but ultimately I think it's a personal choice. Okay, awesome. Last question that we have today that we ask all of our guests is if there is one decision that you make each day based on nutrition, lifestyle, or longevity that you would be willing to share as a tip to our listeners? One decision, huh? Or a few. I would like to say it was it's diet, but no, I mean, I, I like my sweets and <laughs> ice cream and <laughs> stuff like that. So the way I think about it is I like to put money in the bank, so to speak, by uh, physical activity so that I can take it out by e eating the things that, that I like to eat and enjoying, to some extent, driving things by a really boring, <laughs> healthy diet is not the greatest existence overall. So I, I think I really like to earn it by going to the gym. I really love weightlifting, strength training, that sort of thing. Deplete the glucose stores in my muscles so that I can fill, fill them back up with interesting snacks and that sort of thing. <laughs> that's the way I think about it. And we've been on a, a string lately. I think that's been the answer for our last three guests. have all been exercised. So good. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Torquemani. We really appreciate you being with us and sharing all your knowledge. Well, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. It was good talking to you both, Ashley and Gil. And we look forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the leading scientists. For more information, please go to www.insidetracker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.